0: Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday, of course, celebrates the dynamic and dramatic arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, also known as the Triumphal Entry. And this begins what we call Passion Week, which includes Good Friday and, of course, concludes with Resurrection Sunday. And when we think of Palm Sunday or Triumphal Entry, of course, we probably all share a similar picture in our minds. Jesus riding on a donkey through a cheering crowd. Hosanna in the highest, they call. And this gigantic crowd of people so enamored with Jesus that they throw palm branches and their cloaks on the ground for his donkey to walk over as a sign of respect and reverence. And when we look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They all tell a similar story, which makes sense. They're called the the synoptic gospels. That word synoptic means sort of a, uh, a, uh, oh, the word just left my mind. Synopsis, there it is. They're all related to each other in some way, uh, borrowing from each other, connected to each other, um, telling slightly different aspects of the same story. Story. Not contradictory versions, but like if three friends went on the same vacation and had the exact same experiences, but they all took something different away from it. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They tell a version of this that actually goes a little askew from what I grew up understanding about the triumphal entry. Yes, Jesus was riding on a colt or a young donkey, fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah, but In the Synoptic Gospels, it's the disciples that are crying out. Not some random group of city folk, which is what we see typically depicted in movies or what I had envisioned in my young mind. Luke's account specifically puts that into focus in verses 37 through 40 of chapter 19. This is what it says. As he was drawing near, this is Jesus of course, And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, it's clear from this that the disciples of Jesus were the ones causing all this ruckus, and the Pharisees were not too pleased about this at all. And note here why they were celebrating. And that's another piece of the puzzle that I was always missing when I was a kid, in my limited understanding, they had just decided to throw this guy a ticker tape parade for no reason. And I just couldn't figure it out. And that just showed that I was not paying attention in church. And that was my bad. And it says here very clearly in Scripture they were praising God for the things that He had done, the things that they had seen. This wasn't random adulation or a stirring up of a mob. Yeah, 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 I like Him too, right? No, they had seen and heard about this Jesus. Some of them had been with him. They knew what was going on, and they were rightly praising God for it. The other aspect to Luke's account, which is just stunning to me, is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' request that he rebuke his disciples for their adulation, and their praise of him as a coming king. You know, when Jesus tells them that if it weren't the disciples praising him, the very stone's would it's not hyperbole. He wasn't just being obnoxious. In fact, he's actually quoting Old Testament scripture here. We find this in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 11, which says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. You see, from the cult to the crowds, to the very rocks themselves, Jesus was in control of this situation. He knew what was going to happen. And in fact, he was fulfilling, as he often did, ancient prophecy all along the way and pointing it out to those high and mighty religious leaders who should have caught his references and who knows whether they did or not. Even the donkey was a dead giveaway, right? That prophecy from Zechariah that Brother Paul read for us, Jesus was fulfilling that. By entering the city, riding on a colt. He was proclaiming himself king. Let's listen to it again. It says in Zechariah 9.9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So again, the signs were there for everyone to see. Jesus wasn't shying away from them. Now for a time, when he was doing some of his very first miracles, he did ask the recipients to keep silent. Why? Because the time had not come yet. But now, as we will see, the time most certainly had come. Jesus knew it. And as we'll see, other people were starting to understand it as well. You know, the Gospel of John, where I want to spend most of my time this morning, gives us another view of this special event. And John tells it almost from the perspective of the crowd. Remember, John calls himself, although not ever referring to himself by name, Jesus' most beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loves. He was there. He saw all this firsthand. So if you've got your Bibles, open up with me to to John chapter 12. We read this starting verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But just a few verses later... We get the context for why they did that. In verses 17 and 18, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet with him that day was they had heard he had done this sign. Another example of the reasoning behind this praise and adulation for this particular crowd They had seen and heard what Jesus had been doing. It was a huge celebration. And that's why for so many, this Palm Sunday morning, as a morning to to cut branches and to sing songs of praise like we did. See what the Lord has done. In the arc of Jesus' ministry, this, this is the top. This is the apex. But the tone... Changes drastically from here. He needed to complete this ritual, as it were, in order to fulfill the prophecy made of him. Once he got into the city of Jerusalem, however, he knew that something had shifted. And it's clear from the text of John's Gospel more than any other. Between the triumphal entry, and the Last Supper. Jesus does and says so much that speaks about what is to come. Jesus riding into Jerusalem was certainly a grand sight to behold and worthy of celebrating as the beginning of this monumental Passion Week. But the day wasn't over. While the Synoptic Gospels focus much on the events and chronology certainly not lacking in, in miracles and the teachings of Jesus, what we find in the Gospel of John is what could be considered a more spiritual or more theological gospel. He fills in some gaps and adds some explanation to events that happen in the synoptics, and not just in this gospel, but also in his letters. And he also states quite clearly The purpose that he had in writing his gospel. And that's found in John 20, verse 31, where he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Very clear. Everything that he wrote in his gospel was for that purpose. And so this morning, I want to look at what Jesus said once he got down off of that colt. Because that was just the beginning. He had fulfilled that prophecy and was about to shift things into a different gear. So let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 20. There are four distinct times when Jesus gives a little bit of a speech in these following verses, each of them containing some pretty spectacular stuff. So I want to break them down and talk about what he said and how this crowd of disciples and other people that were around responded and how we ought to respond as well. Verse 20 finds Philip and Andrew bringing some Greeks, some Greek people to meet Jesus. Now, scholars debate the way in which they were Greek Were they Greek-speaking Jews? Were they fully Greek people? It doesn't really matter per se. However, what I find beautiful about this, when we think of what belief in the Lord was before Jesus, it was the Jews. They were his chosen people. And what belief in the Lord was like after Jesus, which was for all. What we see here in this introductory Part in this verse 20 is something spectacular. We see what Jesus is about to say. He does so in the presence of not only two of his Jewish disciples, God's chosen people, but also in the presence of people who were in some way at least representative of the Gentiles that Christ also came to save. These words Spoken by Jesus in verse 23 can be looked at as the turning point of his entire ministry. This first speech was his turning point. His message up until now had been future tense. The time is coming. It will come. It's not yet. Hold your horses. But here we see a new message for the very, very first time. And we see it in verse 23. Philip and Andrew bring these Greeks up to Jesus. We don't know what they said or what anybody else said, but Jesus answered them and said this The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Wow, that, that, that was it. Jesus had made his official proclamation to anyone within earshot that the hour had come. This was huge. Three long years of ministry, and this was it. This was the moment, and he knew it. But he didn't end it there, did he? Jesus then gives the Reader's Digest version of the gospel message in verses 24 through 26, which say this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Can you hear the passion in his voice as Jesus tries to explain this to those around him. His double truly at the start for emphasis, right? And then what starts as a mini farming parable so familiar to those who have followed him up until now becomes far more direct and far more plain speaking as he moves on. He is telling this crowd why he has to die so that fruit can be produced in his followers, and that the sort of life that his followers will have to live. Not lovers of their own lives, not lovers of our own lives. Remember, all of this is for us as well. But lovers of God, willing to put their lives on the line as he is doing, foreshadowing the death that so many of his disciples will meet in his name over the coming years. And while this kind of teaching wouldn't have been totally unfamiliar to his followers, within the context of the hour finally being at hand, my guess is that at least a few of his more astute disciples were starting to put two and two together and beginning to view things in a little bit more of an urgent and immediate light. I can see them perhaps looking at each other going, oh, something changed. Weren't we just happy? (laughs) Weren't we just kind of throwing a party? And now all of a sudden the, the mood has changed a little bit. Jesus just got very serious. And if they weren't doing it before, they would once they heard this final part of this first batch of scripture from Jesus In a matter of a few sentences, Jesus shows his humanity and his divinity in a powerful way. Let's read on in verses 27 and the first part of 28, where he says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, Jesus Humanity is on display here because he understands the trial and the pain that is about to take place in the coming days. Remember, Jesus' sacrifice for us was paid in his own human blood, feeling every lash, every nail, every ounce of pain, and yet with his divine soul and sinless Nature, thus taking the place of the spotless lamb necessary for the offering, something that only he could do. So while it's impossible for us to say if Jesus knew exactly what was coming, he knew enough for his soul to be troubled by it, and then his divinity is on display when he asks rhetorically if he should ask the Father to save him from this hour. Which is, of course, absurd because, as he says, what is about to happen, namely his death, is precisely why he has come. You see, Jesus here is walking the walk of the prayer that he modeled for his disciples, which he says, thy will be done. And he does this again later in the garden, later in the week. Yeah, this this is a major turning point in his ministry. No longer are his disciples having to wonder when. It's now. The hour has come. And he ends this opening statement with the true reason for why he's doing all of this. When he says, Father, glorify your name. And this then leads to an incredible, incredible show of the connection between God the Father and God the Son. In response to the words by Jesus, God the Father audibly answers him at the end of verse 28, which says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And this, of course, baffled everybody. Everyone who's standing around, they didn't understand the noise. Some people thought it was thunder. Some people said, oh, it's an angel who is speaking to him. And we've seen this throughout Scripture, right? This happens with Peter, excuse me, with Paul, when Jesus comes and knocks Paul down and and says, why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul knows what's going on, Saul at that time, but no one else around him could understand what was happening. So we have seen God, Jesus, God the Father, audibly speak, only a handful of times, and this is one of those times. And this, this then leads to this second batch of, of speech from Jesus, and this is his shortest speech, and while the first speech served to set things in motion as a turning point in his ministry, this speech serves to tell of what will actually happen on a spiritual level when Jesus dies And rises again. So this is what we will call his impassioned plea. His first speech was a turning point, and the second speech is his impassioned plea. Listen to what he says in verse thirty. Jesus answered, "This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth." Will draw all people to myself. Again, Jesus, in clear speech, is telling them plainly what's going on. He's about to defeat death and sin and change the world with his resurrection from the grave. Even John, in the very next verse, explains to us that Jesus said this just to let the people know what kind of death he was going to die. No longer is he really speaking in in parables or riddles. He is telling them as plainly as he can. Here's what's happening. Catch it. Jesus wants so desperately for these people to hear, to understand. God himself just spoke. God the Father just affirmed what God the Son has said and made known that his name would be glorified in all that would take place as it had been before, as it would be again. But what happened? It had have fallen on deaf ears. Jesus tells that God the Father speaking in that moment was for their sake, for our sake. But hearing and understanding are two different things, yes? Of course, as is typical for the people around Jesus at the time and is all too typical for us even today, They may have heard the words coming out of his mouth, but they didn't believe him. They doubted. They didn't get it. How can you say that? The law says the Christ remains forever, they challenged him. What in the world are you talking about? Who is this son of man? And this question led to the third of Jesus' speeches, one that has a tone of sadness, it. This third speech has a tone of of sadness to it. In the other gospels we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. We see him cleansing the temple with righteous anger. Each of these blocks of text have a, a different emotional range to them as Jesus really seeks to communicate the importance of who he is of what's going on what's about to happen and the dire consequences if people don't get it. This first speech was a declaration, an announcement. One can almost hear his strong sense of purpose. Jesus was getting down to business. He had work to do. And while the second speech retained all of that from the first, it also added a pleading quality to it, right? And he tries to get through to the people around him. And this third block, connecting to the second one, retains that pleading quality, but then adds this bit of sadness to it. And I see that not only from the words that he speaks, but from the context of what he does immediately afterwards and John's explanation of it. As the crowd asked, who is this son of man? Let's pick it up in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? These two verses are so beautiful and yet so sad as he points out that he will only be with them a little while longer. He yearns for them to become sons of light, children of God, believers in his name. But all of this must have been met with continued looks of confusion from the crowd. Jesus' big announcement was, in essence, a bust. Not a surprise, but still disappointing nonetheless. You see, this too was a fulfillment of prophecy, as John goes on to explain in the following verses. Jesus, having said all he had to say and perhaps feeling a little discouraged, departs. Again, I'm not trying to over emotionalize Jesus or this series of events. I'm just going off of the scripture himself. John explains that Jesus departed from them, he hid himself from them. You see, Jesus could see their doubt, he could see their unbelief. Again, the prophecy of what was going to happen from Isaiah, said they would. Even if he couldn't tell because of his spiritual nature, being divine and attuned to that, and I think he could, he certainly could tell by their actions, their questions, which he had been able to do for the past three years. He was used to that look, the look that his disciples gave him, the, I have no idea what you're talking about look. This was not new to him. Most importantly, as I said, though, Jesus knew that prophecy would be fulfilled, and that's what John goes on to explain to us from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Prophecy of hardened hearts, of blinded eyes, that Jesus knew all too well. None of this was a surprise to Jesus, I reckon, but it didn't make it any easier. Just as the betrayal by his closest friends later in the week, wouldn't hurt any less just because Jesus knew it was coming. But it's not all doom and gloom. John does make mention that some of the authorities did believe and hear, even though they stayed silent at this moment. We know that men like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, men like that would take a risk for Jesus later on. This final section of text from Jesus really has a lot of scholars stumped, not from a theological standpoint, but from an organizational standpoint, as they constantly seek to have everything fit in their perfect human understanding of how things should go. We've seen Jesus depart and hide himself from the crowd, and then this last section of text begins with, and Jesus cried out. So many think this block of text is in the wrong place. They argue back and forth about where it should be. He can't be talking now. He just left the crowd. It's kind of ridiculous to me. That's my personal opinion. It takes a lot of ego to assume that you're right and the Bible's wrong. That's my two cents. I take scripture at face value. I'll let smarter people than me argue about it. I take it for what it is. Besides, I think it's a very plausible and common sense explanation that this placement could be correct, thinking that perhaps when Jesus departed and hid himself away, he did so with the 12, as we've seen him done many times before. He took his closest friends and brothers, perhaps, and spent a few moments, now that he had made his official announcement, and now that he was away from the crowd, to wrap things up, to solidify and clarify the things that he had just said. We know the disciples struggled themselves to understand everything he said, so viewing this as a special one-on-twelve session to bring things into clearer focus for them doesn't seem that inconsistent with the other times in scripture when Jesus does the same thing. But what we see in this final speech, the longest from our Lord, is a beautiful summary of his message. This last speech is a beautiful summary. I'm going to read the whole section now so we can hear it in context. You'll see how he touches on many points that he's already made. But he puts them perhaps in a a different way. And this all the more supports my thought of Jesus convening with the twelve to bring the point home. So, if you want to read along, I'm reading out of the ESV if it makes a difference to you. It says verses 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is God's mouthpiece. His words are God's words. If you believe in Jesus, you're believing in God because they are one. This summarizes his entire ministry. It's a perfect wrap-up and redirection for this day. The crowd hailed him as coming king, which, in more ways than they could possibly understand, he was. And yet, he wasn't just a miracle worker, or a prophet, or a teacher, or even a conquering king of a city. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, he is God himself. Now, after this, John's Gospel takes us right to the Last Supper, continuing to focus on the theological aspects of Jesus' teaching. But, you know, the other Gospels give us a little bit more information on what else happened during that week. In Luke, we see the plot to kill Jesus coming together, with Judas agreeing to betray him. Both Matthew and Mark's Gospels have a a very brief triumphal entry, which concludes with the temple cleansing and show during the week Jesus offering many teachings while in the city and all of these together paint that full picture of what happened and of why the Pharisees were plotting against him why they felt so threatened by him I would highly encourage you to take some time and read the accounts in these four gospels from the triumphal entry to the last supper between now and and Friday it will really help you complete that picture get your hearts ready for our good Friday service that we're going to have I hope that now you see that this day that we celebrate as Palm Sunday was so much more than a parade so much more than Jesus on a little donkey coming into a city getting mad in a temple and taking a nap not that any of us ever thought it was just that But often it seems like that's the focus. This day, this day was the turning point of his entire ministry. This is the day that everything changed. No longer was he waiting. No longer were things in future tense. The hour had come. Hosanna in the highest, they shouted. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And how right they were. Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate you today, the beginning of this Passion Week, as you fulfilled prophecy after prophecy made about you thousands of years before you were born in a human body on this earth Lord, as we try to wrap our our human minds around the sacrifice that you made for us, reading this account and seeing the depth of your love as you desperately try to get your message across to these people and through the ages to us is overwhelming. It humbles us to know that you knew why you came, For the very hour, for this very hour is why you were born. So Lord, all we can say is thank you. Help us to redirect our hearts and our minds as we worship through prayer and song, through giving and fellowship, through the reading of the scripture and everything that we do, God, to remember what you've done for us. Help us to forgive more freely because we have first been forgiven. Help us to love with your heart because we have first been loved by you. Lord, help us to focus this week on you and what you were doing and what this week represents as it leads up to Good Friday and more importantly, when you conquered death and rose from the grave and broke those chains forever for us. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.